Amen. Yes. Amen. That's a report uh, on the offering that we took up uh, coming close to a year ago now after the earthquake um, that happened in, in Haiti. And, and we have got these ministries at, in Woodland Hills Church, Providence Ministries and Co-Fed, and they've got relationship with other ministries. And so we took up this offering and gave it to them. And what you're seeing here is some of the fruit of that. And that's, that's the kingdom, right? You can't do everything, but you do what you can, what God calls you to do, and you partner with others. And, uh, and so it's just a beautiful thing to see how far that goes. And actually, there's more than that. There's other ministries. Well, one ministry in Germany that recently has uh, tagged up with us. And now they, they want to build uh, daycare centers and, and things like that in Lugu. And so it, the, the, it, it's a snowball, kingdom snowball that just keeps on going. So thank you for your generosity on that. We also have, over the last four weeks, been doing this uh, Haiti for, uh, or Water for Haiti campaign. As part of our subversive Christmas theme, our goal was to reach twenty-one thousand uh, dollars, and we set it that 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 level. We thought that was attainable, uh, but we also knew that we've already taken up three very uh, offerings uh, for ministries that serve the poor over the last two months in this season of giving. And so we thought folks are probably kind of tapped out, but we still feel called to do this. Uh, and I can report now, as of last night. Uh, we've almost doubled what we had go, uh, and, and taken in. $42,000. Isn't that wonderful? $42,000. Praise God. So I'm, I really am honored to be part of the congregation that knows how to give and knows what it's about. And that was, that was uh, uh, money that was, uh, would have spent on our own family and whatever. And just a portion of that to say we need to include folks who, who need water, clean water. Uh, the number one need down there right now. Uh, so praise God for that. Along those lines, um, December is always a very important uh, month for us as a church, just the running operation of this church, keeping this going to serve those other ministries. Uh, we always, or almost always, go into December uh, behind budget, and December is what makes up the difference, and that's pretty typical for churches. So we came into this December $70,000 behind budget, which is in pocket change. Then last week happened, <laughs> uh, and so now we're, we're over $100,000 behind budget. And uh, that, that's getting to a fair, fairly serious level. And so that, that is just to say this. I mean, folks have, I've heard a number of people say things along these lines that you do a better job raising money for other ministries than you do for Woodland Hills Church. And maybe there's some truth to that. But our policy is simply we make known the needs. We don't badger folks about money ever. Uh, but we make known the needs and then say, just pray about it. And we trust that God will move in hearts and uh, that uh, people will be responsive. Uh, and it's good to see you all this morning. If you're visiting for the first time, I want to give a special hello to you. And uh, no, I don't usually wear a tie, but the, the deal is that, that um, I, I was going out of, of the house this morning and my wife's away because she's up with my daughter who just had a baby. That's our grandchild number four. Yeah, two days ago. Yeah, woo-hoo. And so, uh, yeah, so, so she's not there to dress me. So I'm coming out of the house and I look in the mirror, thankfully, and I was all dressed in black like I was going to a funeral. It's like, okay, this doesn't work. It's Christmas. So I, I, I found a tie to put on just to give a little dash of color. <laughs> Not that you were wondering that, but I just thought, I tell you. I look like a real minister once in a while. Now, we've been doing this series on uh, subversive Christmas as we are serving a subversive king. And here's the thing. For many of us, not all of us, but for many of us, Christmas is identified as kind of a, a sweet time, a nostalgic time. It's a nice time. You kick back with family and friends. For others, it's just a lot of pain. But for some of us, um, you know, there's just a lot of warmth and serenity and nostalgia wrapped up in the season. I turn into, at least sometimes, sort of a sentimental sap around this time of year. We celebrated our Christmas last week because my daughter's due date was Christmas. 
I'm really glad we did. Otherwise, uh, it would have complicated things. And we got snowed in uh, that last week uh, for three days with my, my kids and my grandkids. And it was wonderful and exhausting. And, um, uh, but, you know, as I'm watching my grandkids and just, you know, we're hanging out together. We're playing this Wii together and having all this fun board games. And, you know, I, my heart was just full of warmth and, and just love and, and peace. And it was like a beautiful Christmas. I'm looking at my grandchildren and I, I'm remembering my kids were just that age yesterday. It's like, it's so odd. Like, it just seems like it was yesterday. And that creates this kind of bittersweet joy. It's, and then I can even remember when I was the age of my oldest grandchild, Sol. He's five now. And, and I remember my first, uh, Christmas when I was five. I got this red bike. And, and uh, the magic of it. And, and there's, so there's, it's, it's like time, or, uh, Christmas sort of uh, is a, not just the march of time. And it creates this nostalgia for some of us. And there's a serenity and a joy that, that goes along with it. And I'm not against that at all. In fact, I'm for that. I think if you're able to have that at Christmas season, drink it deeply. That's wonderful. The thing is, and here's the challenge for kingdom people, and we've got to be very aware of this. What can happen, in fact, has happened, and in fact, it's the normal now in our culture, has been for over a century, is that that feeling of sentimentalism gets wrapped up with the very meaning of Christmas. And so we look at the little baby Jesus, and he's really cute, and he's cuddly, and he's, and he's peaceful and serene. Oh, isn't he cute? That's just a hallmark version of Jesus. Uh, but see, we, we begin to think that the reason Jesus came into the world was to be cute and cuddly and serene. And then what, what, what can happen, what has happened, is actually the normal now in the culture, is that the gospel that he came to bring, the good news he came to bring, was about being nice and cuddly. He came to make the world a nice, cuddly place. And, and that just completely waters down the very meaning of what it is to be a follower of Jesus. We, you know, we, we're just cute, cuddly people, and we just want to sweeten up the world a little bit, be nice to your neighbor. That's good to be nice to your neighbor, but if you read the New Testament, that's not at all the meaning of the gospel that you get. The reason why Jesus became a human being wasn't to become cute and cuddly and serene. In fact, if you read the... The, the New Testament, what you find is that the reason why God became a human being, a little baby 2,000 years ago, was that there was a war going on. It was an act of war. It wasn't a cute, cuddly thing at all. There was a war going on. Way back in our primordial, primordial history, human beings rebelled and invited into this earth the principalities and powers and Satan, and they've been corrupting everything ever since. That way not, that's why nothing works the way it's supposed to work. For ages, we've been under bondage to that, and Jesus came into this world, the New Testament teaches us, primarily to end that war. To gain a victory and to liberate uh, his people and to reconcile them to, the, them to God and to establish his kingdom on earth. It says in 1 John that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came, that little baby. He's going to kick some devil butt. It wasn't cute and cuddly. He's a cute baby, but the story around it is, is, is all about warfare. Jesus says a few, uh, just a little while before his crucifixion, he says, Now is the judgment of this world, and now the prince of this world will be driven out. He's referring to Satan. The ruler of this age will be driven out. He came as an act of war. He came to liberate his people, liberate the creation, establish his kingdom. And to do that, he had to bring an end, in principle at least, bring an end to the warfare that had been raging throughout history. Not really a cute and cuddly story, but it goes on from there. The principalities and powers, the devil, they weren't going to take this laying down. No, they struck back. Here's a version of the Christmas story that you don't hear very often this time of year because it's not very cute and cuddly. It comes out of the book of Revelation. A woman clothed with the sun was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. 
An enormous red dragon stood in front of the woman. Get that picture. So that it might devour her child the moment he was born. Now there's some dispute about who the woman is. Was it Eve or was it Mary or was it Israel and the church? And, and, and scholars debate that. But no one debates that this is, the child is Jesus and the dragon's the devil. So apparently there was a demonic assault on the baby Jesus early on to keep this thing from getting off the ground. The enemy had some inkling that he was up to no good and so wanted to kill this child. We, we find out one of the ways that he tried to do that in the Gospel of Matthew. Here's the story. Most of you have heard it before, that these, these three wise men or magi, we just sang about them, they're astrologers of sort, and somehow they had figured out through studying ancient prophecies that a king was to be born around that time, someplace in the east. And then God gave them a sign in the sky, and they followed it like a star, and it led them to Palestine. And they naively thought that the king of that area, his name was Herod, a real wicked, paranoid, psychopathic Freakazoid, they thought that he would want to know about this newborn king. He'd want to honor this, this king. Not a chance. But they told Herod about this, so Herod went along with the deal, trying to find out where this baby was so he could kill him. The Magi go, and they end up worshiping the child. And then an angel warns them about what Herod is up to, so they don't go back to Herod. And then Matthew tells us that when Herod found this out, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity. Kill them all! Try to catch this, this, this newborn king. He's threatened by this, this kid uh, who are two years old and utter in accordance with the time that he'd learned from the Magi. Now, you need to understand that Bethlehem, it's not like the Twin Cities. Some people think like, oh, it was a giant metropolis, and so there must have been thousands and thousands of kids who were killed. We know from archaeology that probably Bethlehem was, was, had a population of a thousand or less, and so probably there was somewhere between half a dozen and a dozen kids who were killed here. But uh, uh, it's a massacre nonetheless, not a cute, cuddly, serene story. The Christmas story is about a God who became a human being as an act of war to liberate his people, liberate creation, and bring an end, a victory over his arch enemy that he, that, uh, in a warfare that had been going on for ages and ages and ages. And we are called, all who follow the empire of this little baby, the kingdom of this little baby, all of us are called to participate in that battle because while the battle has in principle been ended, when Jesus died and rose from the dead, a baby accomplished what he set out to do. While it's in principle ended, we yet live in a world that does not acknowledge that victory. And so in that sense, the warfare that began on that first Christmas morning continues to this day in each one of our hearts. Now to learn a little bit about how, see if Christmas means anything, it's got to be a reminder of war. When we look at that little baby Jesus, it should remind us not of something that's cute and cuddly and serene. Don't be happy for nostalgic feelings this time of year. But it should remind us that there's a war going on. He came as an act of war, and we are called to participate in it. Now, to know a little bit about how we participate, it's good, as we've been doing throughout this series on subversion, it's good for us to anchor ourselves in the actual history of the time and look at this wicked King Herod. Okay, Herod, he was this guy. He reigned from 27, no, 37 B.C. to 4 B.C., uh, you'll notice there that he actually stopped reigning before the, a- a- the era of Christ, but that's because our calendars are off a little bit. Most scholars believe that Jesus was born one to two years before Herod died. That is him. Why he was wearing such a doofy hat, we've, historians have been puzzling over that photograph uh, for, for, for eons. So uh, he, he reigned during this time. Now, the thing about Herod is that he incarnates the values of the empires of this world. He just, he epitomizes the values of the empires of this world. All the empires of this world, all of them, are rooted in power, wealth, 
and recognition. Power as expressed through their military. They need power to become an independent nation, not be in servitude. They need wealth to fund the military and other things, and that's expressed in their economy. And they need recognition, and by that I simply mean this. They demand loyalty from their subjects. They coerce it if necessary. Uh, And they want to be uh, legitimized in the face of the world, at least as a threat. They want a wow factor. They want to impress others. That's what North Korea did recently when it had that strike on that island. It's just saying, look, we got some muscle. You know, we're legit. You know, we're on this playground too. And empires have been doing that for ages and ages and ages. Power, wealth, and recognition. They run on that. That's their food. And Herod incarnates power, wealth, and recognition, the need for recognition. Uh, it's like he's that on steroids. In terms of power, he ran his area with a, like a police state. Had secret police everywhere. And any sign of disloyalty, he would have the people arrested and uh, executed. Just ruled with an iron hand. He, he executed one of his wives and two of his sons because he thought that they were maybe not loyal to him. He's a paranoid lunatic. That's why John the Baptist got killed. Someone had reported that John was saying some bad words about him. Off with your head. That's how he ruled. Install terror. And, and coerce loyalty on the part of your subjects. In terms of wealth, some argue he was, he was one of, if not the richest person uh, in all of history in terms of his personal wealth. He had no qualms about cashing in on his position for personal gain. Built palaces all over the place. While the peasants were starving, and he was taxing them up to 80%, he was just living in unprecedented comfort and luxury. He just incarnates the values of the empire. He loved to build all over the place. This was his wow factor. Look what I can do. And so he built palaces, theaters, often naming them after himself, uh, the Herodian Theater. Uh, he built the Antonia, this magnificent palace. That's where, where Pilate passed judgment on, on Jesus. Uh, he built the, the Herodian, one of these giant palaces, which he named after himself. It overlooked Bethlehem. Just an incredible edifice, especially when you consider that they're using first century technology. He built the Masada. This, this mind-boggling, mind-boggling accomplishment by ancient standards. Up on this plateau, I've been there. It's just unbelievable what he did. And it had heated baths, and it had refrigerator not refrigeration technically, but food storage that could last years, way ahead of its time. Most scholars think that he built this because he wanted someplace to run if his worst paranoid fears came true and everyone turned against him. He could survive there for years. He had a water system that was so far ahead of its time in terms of collecting water in the desert. This is by the Dead Sea. And he redid part of the desert to have this water running his way, and it was just unbelievable. So he's this master builder. But his greatest accomplishment was the temple. I mean, this, this, this comes close to the pyramids in terms of sheer awe and wonder at, at what he could achieve using this manpower, 500 ton uh, stones that were hauled in to lay the foundation of this thing. And it was absolutely magnificent. Spent uh, decades and decades building this. It was never completed and it was, it was destroyed shortly after his uh, death when the Romans laid siege to Jerusalem in 70 AD. But there's parts of it that still remain. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem now, most of what you'll see of the ancient world is remnants of what Herod built. He incarnates the values of the empires of the world. Power, wealth, and fame. Now, Jesus comes into the world and he's going to lock horns with that. Weighing in on one corner is Herod with all that power, with all that wealth, with all that fame, all those loyal subjects. He's got the beckoning of the Roman military at his fingertips, and he's got Satan, the principality and power of the air, covering his back. On the other corner, we find this cute little seven-pound baby, uh, born illegitimately to an unwed peasant 
teenage Jewish girl in an animal stable. That's the battle, folks. The baby versus Herod. But it really was a battle. It really was. Herod, though he was a paranoid freakazoid, had, had, had one thing right. This baby was a threat to him. He, on some level, understood that. Now, Jesus wasn't going to compete alongside of the empires of world power and fame. He had a totally different kind of a kingdom. But he did have a kingdom that claims absolute allegiance and therefore cannot be divided with the kingdoms of this world. Herod was, was up to that point right in seeing in Jesus a threat. This, this little baby came into this world to give us an alternative kingdom that would not only in the end subvert Herod's kingdom and Caesar's kingdom, but ultimately would undermine and delegitimize all the empires of, that are premised on power, wealth, and fame. This baby was in fact a threat, and the early Christians knew that. This was a subversive kingdom, as I said several weeks ago. When they called Jesus Lord and King and Ruler, they knew what they were doing. These were politically loaded words. You use those words only about Caesar and Herod and the likes of those. To, you, to, to apply them to anyone else is treason, and you'll die for it. And they did. And when they called the gospel the good news, and they referred to Jesus' movement as a kingdom, they knew exactly what they were doing. These are politically loaded terms. You're, you're talking subversive talk, revolution talk. This is the kind of thing that will get you killed, and it did get them killed. In fact, it's, it's interesting, but for the first three centuries, Christians were put to death, burned alive, fed to lions all the time. And the main reason was because they were said to subvert the state. They were not patriotic enough. And that's why they were put to death. It's a little bit ironic when you consider that we live in an age where people question the integrity of your faith if you don't pass their litmus test for being patriotic enough. In the ancient world, it was just the opposite. You Christians, you just aren't, you know, you don't go along with the crowd. You got to die. You're not patriotic enough. But there really is a contrasting kingdom here. Herod got that part right. If that little baby is Lord, that means I'm not Lord. If he's ruler, then I'm not ruler. If he's king, I'm not king. And if people are going to follow him and his values, well, then they're not going to be following me and my values and the values of, of, of power, wealth, and fame. And so he did what any earthly ruler, or almost any earthly ruler would do. If you got a threat, you kill him. That's just the way the world works. You threaten us, you threaten our country, you threaten our way of life, we kill you. And so Herod wanted to use his wealth and use his power and use his fame to try to exterminate the baby Jesus. What, 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 what Herod didn't understand, what no kingdom of the world can understand, is that you're not going to extinguish the empire of this baby with power and wealth and all your loyalty. Uh, what he didn't understand, what, what, what the thinking of the world can't understand is you, you, can't, you can't stop this this, this kingdom, this movement that this baby set in motion, you can't stop it with your military and your might and, and your wealth. Uh, Herod, your sword, it's just not going to work. This is, because, see, this kingdom of the, of the baby, this empire of the baby, it's not rooted in power. So you can't crush it with power. Your sword isn't going to do any good, Herod. Uh, the whole Roman military is not going to do any good. In fact, you could take, you could take the whole of uh, America's $553 billion a year military budget and you can't touch the kingdom of this baby. 
You can take all 5,113 of our nuclear warheads and use them, and you're not going to touch the kingdom of this baby because this kingdom isn't rooted in power as the world knows it or wealth as the world knows it or, or coercing loyalty. This, this kingdom is rooted in the heart of God, the, the heart of the eternal God of love. And you can't, you can't stop it. You can't squish it. You can't exterminate it. You can't bomb it. In fact, doing so only makes it go forward all the more. It's a completely different kind of kingdom. The way this kingdom fights... The way this kingdom wins is not by grabbing on to more power and wealth and fame. People who think they're doing God's will by trying to get more power to control things, they're just, they're thinking along the lines of Herod's kingdom. In this kingdom, this is altogether different. God lays aside his power and becomes this vulnerable little child. That's how this kingdom fights. This empire fights by God setting aside his riches and being born to this impoverished teenage girl and setting aside his fame and his glory and his exaltation to become this little child who's born to illegitimately and bearing that all of his life and then at the end of his life taking all the shame of the world and and, 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 and bearing it. That's how this kingdom fights. This empire is established and advances and in the end is victorious uh, not by killing your enemies, but by loving them. And not by trying to control people, but by serving people. And not by trying to coerce loyalty, but by winning loyalty through acts of self-sacrificial love. And in, in this kingdom, this empire goes forward not by insisting on national boundaries and enforcing national identities, but by proclaiming that national identities have no meaning any longer. National boundaries have no meaning any longer because we're following the king of all kings and the lord of all lords, the one who's the, who reigns over every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every people group. And so he is Lord, and that means all these other distinctions are absolutely insignificant. It's a, it's a radical kingdom. But to follow that king, the kingdom of the baby, the empire of the baby, means you live like that. You imitate him, as the New Testament tells us over and over again. You live like him, love like him, think like him, serve like him, which means invariably you have to, as he did, live in revolt against the values of wealth and power and fame. And to whatever degree we have wealth, power, or fame, we don't cash in on it like Herod did. We use it to serve and to do what he did. And, uh, and not get big, but to get low. That's how this kingdom advances. It's a loony kingdom. It's a crazy, upside-down, foolish-looking kingdom. I mean, the, the greatest victory in this kingdom happened the day that our leader got himself crucified. That's pretty weird. Think about it. It's a crazy kingdom. In the eyes of the world, it looks absolutely stupid. Uh, but that's how it wins. And but see, it, it looks foolish in the eyes of the world. But if you've got eyes to see, if you've got eyes to see and a heart that will let you see it, it's a beautiful kingdom. It's altogether beautiful. It's a beautiful empire, the empire of this baby. Um, it's not cute, sweet, and serene. But it is beautiful. And to those who have woken up to the silliness and empty futility of chasing after wealth and power and fame, if you see the utter nonsense of that, well, then this kingdom becomes life itself. This empire is life itself. And if if you're sufficiently disgusted with the perpetual violence of this world, the merry-go-round of blood that defines human history, and and, and if you're sufficiently disgusted with just the the, the degradation and the corruption and the destruction and the the, the bondage of sin that characterizes this world, well, then then this this empire here, it's it's, it's the only way to live. It's the only thing going. 
It's foolish in the eyes of the world. But see, if you've lost confidence, if you're one of those who have had the wisdom to lose confidence in the Herods running the world and the Caesars running the world and the presidents and the senates and the congress and you've come to the conclusion that they don't know what they're doing and they're not gonna, uh, they don't run the world well and they, they're not going to fix the world, well then, if you've come to that realization, then this kingdom, this empire of this baby is the only thing worth trusting. And it is the only thing worth trusting. Somebody's got to say amen to that. And, and, and see, if you're one of those who understand that, that, that you realize you're a sinner and that you can't, you can't undo what you've done and you can't fix your own past and you can't get right with God on your own effort and you've messed up your life to the point where you're scrambled eggs and you can't put it back together again, if you've come to the point of that humility, well, then the empire of this baby looks so stupid, so stupid, ridiculous in the eyes of the world. Uh, but to you, this is salvation itself. This is salvation. Because he's not just a king, he's the savior. You see, a complete reframe there. And the promise of God, and this is the good news of the Christmas story, the promise of God is that this, this little baby and his empire wins in the end. Uh, his, this is the one that will last. You know, Herod's kingdom comes to an end. Yeah, they all, they all come to an end. Uh, Russia has pretty much come to an end. China, is, it's kind of, it looks like it's on its way up, but it will come to an end. America, it looks like we're on our way down and we'll come to an end. Persia, they all come to an end. That's just what they do. They rise, they go shock and awe. Wow, look at us. And then they, they, even Rome, the mighty Rome, lasted, you know, had a good run, but it comes to an end. But this kingdom of this little baby operating not on the basis of power, see, that, that's why it will never come to an end. It doesn't depend on power, wealth, and fame to keep going. It just depends on the love of God. And people saying yes to that. And of that kingdom, there will be no end. But see, we're not in that someday yet. We're yet in a state of war, right? We're in this battle zone. We live in a world that does not yet acknowledge that Jesus Christ was victorious. And so we're still under the, 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 the deception of the enemy. In a very real sense, the spirit of Herod still roams the earth trying to snuff out this little child. Only now, the Bethlehem is our own heart. We need to be aware of this, that, that we live in a realm where there still is this, in principle, he's been driven out. His end is sure, but he still has an influence here because we give it to him, an influence in this world. And, and the values of power I can control and of wealth I can, I can accumulate and of fame, look at me. Those values bombard us every single day. day. The war that began that first Christmas morning is still continuing and the battlefield is our hearts. And so the question we've got to live in and, the, and see, if Christmas reminds us of anything, if it means anything to kingdom people, uh, it can't be about the values of the empire, the world's empire. And the irony, as Seth said last week, and I encourage you to get that message if you haven't heard it, the irony is that this is the high holiday of the empire. Spend, 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 buy, 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 keeps the machinery going. But if Christmas means anything to us as kingdom people, it can't be that, nor can it be when we look at the baby Jesus, oh, how cute, sweet, and serene. Didn't he come to make the world a, a more serene and sweet place? No, it's got to be a reminder that, oh yeah, that's right, that's God who did that. And, and there's a war going on, and I'm called to participate in that. And the baby reminds us that there's a war going on. It's not about cuteness and serenity. No, it's, it's serious. And it reminds us sort of how we're to fight. Not by getting big like the world does, but by getting small. The infinite God becoming that little child. By getting low, by serving. By purging, uh, by purging our minds and hearts and attitudes of judgments and, 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 and hatred and hostility. By, by learning how to live in love as Jesus Christ did. That's how we do war. By putting off all violence in our thought and word and action and following the example of Jesus. Trusting that that in the end wins. It's so stupid in the eyes of the world, but if you've got eyes to see, it's the only game in town. It's the only thing worth trusting, and in the end, it does win. 
this has got to remind us of this. So the question we live in is this. Uh, Does our life day-to-day reflect the values of the empire of the baby or the empire of Herod? Or replace it with whoever you want. Now, I, you know, I, I think what we, what we as a church have done the last couple of months has just been so beautiful. Uh, you know, these four ministries we've taken on and now raising $42,000 for, for Water for Haiti. And I, I, I so applaud that and I'm so honored to belong to a congregation that knows how to sacrifice like that. And see, that's what we're talking about. That puts on display a different kind of king and a different kind of kingdom. But we also have to be aware that it can very easily happen that we do something and then we coast on it. You know how that is. And, and then that becomes sort of a token to like, convince us that we're okay. And at that point, it becomes an idol. It's good to feel good about that, but we have to live in the question, all of us, all the time. Lord, where is my heart? Uh, how, how does my day-to-day spending, my day-to-day time, my day-to-day attitudes, the way I interact with, with my spouse and my kids and my neighbor and my enemies, how does that, what kingdom does that reflect? And so it's a daily discipline saying, Lord, keep on converting us over to your odd and beautiful, upside-down, victorious kingdom. That our lives, day by day, reflect that value system. So I want to end just with that prayer. A prayer that we resubmit our lives to him. As I do, I'd like the prayer folks to come up. And if, you have, if you're here this morning and have any, any need whatsoever that you'd like to have prayed for, I encourage you to come forward and, and pray with these folks. Um, Christmas time can often you know, sort of stir up some stuff that used to be dormant. And maybe you want to pray with these folks, or you can just pray at the altar on your own. But with me, submit your heart once again to the King, the King baby Jesus. Father, thank you for calling us to be part of this beautiful, unusual, odd, strange, upside-down, but victorious empire. Lord, be always in the process, we pray, freeing us from Egypt, getting us out of the bondage of Egypt. Reveal to us, Holy Spirit, even right now as we pray, reveal to us, Maybe areas where we've been co-opted by the values of wealth, power, and recognition. Maybe in ways that we didn't realize, but now is the time for us to wake up. Wake us up, Lord. Wake us up. Wake us up. And win our hearts over. And use us to be conduits of your empire in this world. Subversive warriors of the king. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's warriors said, Go out, engage in the war of love. Have a Merry Christmas. See you on Friday.